Well, um, we have a few announcements we'd like to make, and I think what we'll do um, is maybe do it next week, but let me just think about that. As you turn to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, last Sunday, there are some changes this week. We announced that Mark Hill would be preaching today on our vision for youth and family ministry here at Dillon Community Church, and for various reasons, we decided to do it next week instead. So he will be up here after helping us with our worship this week. He'll be preaching. on a very powerful and exciting subject in terms of where we're headed as a congregation, at least in some parts of who we are. And we decided to do that next week. One of the most important reasons being that this is already the second Sunday of Advent, right? And I think it's about time we get into the spirit of Christmas as a congregation before this season passes us up. And it's going awfully fast. And so that's what I'd like to speak about today as we tee up officially from the pulpit the uh, Christmas season. Christmas. Today I'd like to talk about the true meaning of Christmas. Just after we got here, I guess it was about five years ago or so now, on our first Christmas here, I talked about uh, the meaning of the Christmas tree. How many of you remember the meaning of the Christmas tree? So obviously none of you were here then or you would have remembered the whole thing, right? Um, which is the very picture, I think, of the true meaning of Christmas. And I said back then that this might very well be an annual message. As many of you know, I've got a handful, maybe two or three sermons, that I've shared with you in different ways, uh, with kind of revising them a little bit, uh, more than once. So important are they to our faith. But somehow, this never ended up being one of them. As each Christmas season came and went, I decided to focus on other things. And several of you have asked, when are you going to do it again? Well, this is the year. This year, once again, I'd like to talk about the meaning of the Christmas tree. And maybe you'll remember it next time I do it in three or four more years. Um, uh, The meaning of the Christmas tree. And I'll do it with a different emphasis uh, in somewhat of a different way. Yes, the Christmas tree. Bear with me. I hope that once we're done today, you'll never again uh, look at your tree in the same way. And I hope that whenever you do look at your tree, your heart will be strangely moved. Your heart will be strangely, you know, wooed to the heart of what Christmas is all about. Because that is the most powerful picture that I know, the most compelling uh, and inviting picture that I think there is of the true meaning of Christmas. And we have that on good biblical grounds and on other grounds too as we're going to see today. Really, it goes back to the old Christmas carol. Remember, O Tenenbaum, O Tenenbaum? Uh, uh, O Christmas tree, O Christmas tree, your boughs can teach a lesson. And indeed, we'll see, they can. What is the true meaning of Christmas? Well, it's not what one of our kids said years ago when we were uh, trying to teach it to him. It was Cameron way back when he was seven years old, and we were talking about how the true meaning of Christmas was wrapped in a manger, and I thought it was a great image that would permanently put it on their minds. And I guess Cameron's mind immediately went to the presence because he he said, and uh, the seven-year-old, kind of tongue-in-cheek with a playful glimmer in his eye, he said, wrapped in a manger, I can get into that, and I wrote it down afterwards, so the The meaning of Christmas is not the wrapping paper, but what's under the wrapping paper. So what about what's under the wrapping paper? We say it's not the gifts, it's not what we get. But what about what we get? Are they part of the true meaning of Christmas? Or are they kind of, you know, this embarrassing add-on that comes from a materialistic culture that we can't live without because we're so materialistic? 
You might be pleasantly surprised today because contrary to the flack that we often get this time of year from the Ebenezer Scrooges at Christmas time who say there's nothing good about the way we do it. There's a whole lot of good, though, about the way we in America and in many places around the world celebrate it. And for me, it's all wrapped up in the Christmas tree. Oh, Christmas tree, your boughs can teach a lesson. It's a lesson that comes directly from the Bible and indirectly from many different Christian traditions, traditions rooted in the Bible, uh, which is where I'd like to begin today. The, the extreme Scrooges, which you might call the witch hunters, uh, would say that the Christmas, Christmas as we know it is root, not rooted in any kind of uh, Christian tradition, but in certain pagan traditions. How many of you have heard those arguments over the years? A number of you have, yeah. And they would say that we're virtually pagans because we celebrate it like we do, right? So there's this fog of guilt sometimes that, that we can have. The other day I ran across a typical article by one of them called, Is Christmas Christian? Uh-oh. This may be shocking, a shocking thought to some, it says, but after wrestling with the question for several years now, so you better listen to me, search the scriptures and church history, and and you'll come to the conclusion that there is nothing Christian about Christmas, that in its present observance, as well as in its origin, Christmas is basically and essentially pagan. Here's another article titled, Are Christianity and Christmas Compatible? Just a little research reveals that Christmas was actually adopted from a Roman celebration called Saturnina. Isn't that alarming? The very ways that Christmas is celebrated are directly borrowed from a festival to a god of the Romans. This is from a tract, The Plain Truth About Christmas. The real origin of Christmas goes back to ancient Babylon. It is bound up in the organized apostasy which has gripped and deceived these many centuries. And then finally, here's an article titled, Tis the Season for Pagan Worship. There is no biblical warrant, precedent, or precept whatsoever for the remembrance of the day of Christ's birth as a day of special religious celebration. And then they go on to prove it. So Christmas is basically and essentially pagan. Question, is the way we celebrate Christmas basically pagan? Clearly, it's laced with materialism so often. Too much of it and selfishness and greed and whatnot. But is there anything good about it? O Tenenbaum, O Tenenbaum, (laughs) your bows can teach a lesson. The Ghostbusters would say that if there's a a lesson in the tree, it's a bad one and not a good one. Let me conclude by reading what they say about the tree. The custom of Christmas trees, wrote one of them, finds its origin in paganism. Pagans used evergreens and tree decorating during the winter. The Vikings of northern Europe saw evergreens as the symbol of hope that spring would return after the cold, dark winter. Druids in England would, um, and France decorated oak trees with fruit and candles to honor their gods of harvest and light. They thought evergreens were magical and used them to combat the forces of evil. Romans decorated trees with trinkets and candles during Saturnilla. The midwinter harvest of festival and revelry of Mithras, the Persian god of light and truth. Can the boughs teach us a lesson? Well, let's have at it. All of this is true, but I'm afraid the evidence simply does not support the assertion that the Christmas tree was a direct descendant of any of this. 
And even if it was, why couldn't God redeem it for good just as He does so much else? But the best evidence points in quite another direction. And bear with me here because we're going to work our way up to a lesson that I hope you'll never, ever forget this time. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, we're, We're looking at the roots of the tree that will be in the heart of your home this year or in the home where you celebrate Christmas. And then we'll look at the fruits. And once we're done, that tree in the living room, Lord willing, will fill you, just the glimpse of it, with the true meaning of Christmas. Just what are the roots of that tree? Well, back in the 11th century, uh, religious plays called mystery plays became quite popular uh, all the way across Europe. They performed them both outdoors and in churches. One of the most popular was called the Paradise Play which was about the story of Adam and Eve, and it ended with the, the promise of a Savior who would come at Christmas time. It was a very simple play by today's standards. In fact, it had only a single prop, and that was, get this, the Paradise Tree. The Paradise Tree, which was a fir tree, an evergreen. It was adorned with apples that stood for the per- forbidden fruit, which of course was in paradise, and with wafers that stood for the bread of life, because it symbolized the tree of knowledge and good and evil and the tree of life. The play was so popular that people ended up putting up a paradise tree in their own homes on December 24th. And they did it on the 24th, not because of any pagan holiday, but because the Eastern Church, in the Eastern Church, this was the feast day of Adam and Eve, who were in paradise, um, when they talked about the trees and the garden. At the same time, there was another custom that Christians had been practicing on December 24th since the late Middle Ages. On Christmas Eve, they would light a candle a large candle called the Christmas light to celebrate Christ, who is the light of the world, right? And in Western Germany, they set up smaller candles on a pyramid, like the the pyramid candelabra we had up there uh, last week. And um, they would surround uh, that pyramid of candles with objects like glass, balls, and tinsel. And on the top of the pyramid, they put, put the Star of Bethlehem. And some had this tall candle that they called the Christmas light, and others had a parable, a candelabra, the Christmas pyramid with decorations and a crowning star, and others had a tree, and all of that came together into what we celebrate today. Over the centuries, they combined them all together, and the star and the candles and the decorations and all that ended up on the paradise tree, which became a symbol for none other than the tree of life. And there's the lesson, at least the heart of it. What's in our year, uh, living rooms each Christmas stands for the tree of life. Did you know that? And just what is the tree of life? The better question would be, who is the tree of life? If you know your scripture. Because the Scripture gives the answer. To begin with, all through the Bible, people who are godly, people who are like Christ, are compared to trees. Remember that? Fruitful trees. Remember Psalm 1? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, etc., etc. But he will be like a what? Yeah, a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, etc., etc. Psalm 52, 8. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. 
Psalm 92.12, the righteous man will flourish like a tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Jeremiah 17.8, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water. If you're at all acquainted with Scripture, the image of a tree should call to mind a little bit more than just a pagan symbol. And more than just a kind of, you know, vegetation. No, it should bring to mind a kind of person, a godly person. But Solomon takes it even further. In Proverbs, he compares the godly man not just with a tree, but with a tree of life. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous, he says, is as a tree of life. Proverbs 15.4, a person who has a soothing tongue is a tree of life. So wise, godly people are like fruitful trees. And in particular, according to Solomon, people who are truly wise are like the tree of life. Why? Because they resemble someone else. Proverbs 13.3.13 How blessed is the man who finds wisdom, capital W, for she is a tree of life to all who take hold of her. That is, wise people are like a tree of life because they're like wisdom herself who is the tree of life. Remember when we went through that in Proverbs 1-9 years ago? I, I don't dare ask you that. So I won't. But some of you, I'm sure, do well. Remember that. And, you know, now that we're in New Testament times, now that we, we know now that Christ is the wisdom of God. Like it says in Colossians 2.3, For in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1.24, He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the incarnation of the wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs. There's much more, and I know it's getting complicated. Uh, uh, but the simple point is this. Solomon taught that wise people are like a tree of life because they're like wisdom herself, who is the tree of life, which we know now is another name for Christ himself. He has many names, and he takes different forms. He's, he's the bright and morning star. There's a, you can write a book on any one of these. He's the lily of the valley. He's um, the lamb, the lion, the vine, the branch, the, the root of Jesse. I've got a big poster in my office with 50 of his names on there. And he's the tree of life. Which brings us to Genesis 3.22, because here it tells us something else about the tree of life. For God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. This is after Adam and Eve had fallen, after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that? They know good and evil, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take from what? Take also from the tree of life and live forever. Who do we eat from and drink from and take into our hearts so we live forever? wasn't time for that yet. Therefore, the Lord sent them out from the Garden of Eden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which he turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree is a symbol of Christ in paradise, who one day is going to nourish us and sustain us forever. In the love feast of the Lamb as the Scripture calls it, will be granted a new kind of food that will glorify, that will sustain our glorified bodies. 
Just like Christ said, for him who overcomes, Revelation 2.7, I will grant to him to eat of the tree of life, which will be up there in the paradise of God. In a way that we can only begin to understand, through the tree of life, we'll feast on him. And it's this tree that shows up each year in our living rooms. The tree that stands for Christ. A cult object, you know, a cult object from the pit of hell. No, it's an object lesson from, from, from the heart of paradise. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, your boughs can teach a lesson. Now, bear with me a bit longer. The Scripture couldn't be more clear. It's His symbol. It stands for Christ. The lion and the lamb are His symbol in the animal kingdom, and the tree is His symbol in the plant kingdom. And it's not surprising that trees resemble Christ in so many ways, which is what I also think about as I sit there having my devotions, gazing at the tree in our living room. There's just something about trees. Ever notice that? It probably, you know, this might bore some of you to tears, but you'll find out a little bit more about your pastor at the very least. So just indulge me. I mean, why in the world would we, you know, would we haul into our living rooms the largest member of the plant kingdom and do it every year and keep it there upwards to a month and longer while the needles fall down if you have a real tree and you're sweeping them up and all this? Why do we do this? Why do we go to all that work? Ever ask that question? An Estes Park guy that I ministered to while we were pastoring in Estes Park, a retired engineer, hated to decorate the tree. So when he built his retirement home, he created a secret closet right behind the fireplace. And he would wheel out a a totally decorated tree every year and then just wheel it back. And sometimes you feel like doing that. I've got to admit it. But you do that, you miss a whole lot, as you're going to see. Why do all that work? Why do I make it even more work? As I'm going to tell you about in a bit. The answer can turn it from a nice ritual, a little ritual that's kind of a pain in the neck, into a nourishing tradition that it can be. One that has an incredibly deep and rich roots. One that can enrich your whole Christmas experience. Do you know that in a lot of ways, trees, (laughs) trees are the protectors and the sustainers of life on planet Earth, or at least a good part of it, just like he is. They absorb the carbon dioxide, as most of you know, in the air, and they produce most of the oxygen that's necessary for life. They regulate the global climate by doing, you know, these prodigious uh, transfers of cold and water and heat, all of which impact temperatures and wind patterns and precipitation. That thing in your living room is literally a miracle worker. Not to mention a kind of Hercules. I mean, can they lift water or what? Have you ever heard about that? At a rate of 150 feet an hour. That's how fast it goes. In full summer, an average tree lifts a ton of water a day. um, Heaves it heavenward into the atmosphere. Sends it there where it becomes life for the world. Literally, the water of life through a process called transpiration. A big elm has the pulling power of as many as six million leaves. 
It starts far below where, where uh, underneath that elm, a, a single cubic inch of soil can hold upwards to 6,000 miles of root hairs that seek out every last and even every, every last drop, even every last molecule of water. And up the tree it grows, and then from the tree into the world for the sustenance of life as we know it. Just like He sustains our lives. And trees have got the whole world in their hands. Literally. Just like He does, or at least a good part of it. They keep it from eroding away through tap roots that spread far and wide and plunge downward. And we take it for granted because we don't see them just like we take Him for granted. Their roots are like soil anchors. Some trees send out wide mats of roots that can literally clutch a whole acres of soil and keep it from washing away through the winds and the storms of life. Just like He does with us, who's in ways that we only begin to understand is our soul anchor. It's one of their most important functions to protect the topsoil from erosion, without which little else could grow. And so, not surprisingly, the removal of forests has resulted in costly droughts and floods and landslides that's wiped out whole villages and widespread destruction of whole regions and animal habitats. All because of how important trees are. They have a good part of the plant and animal kingdoms in their hands too. Rainforests alone, and we all know that these days, contain about 75% of the world's plant and animal species. The vast majority of which would be extinct without trees, which provide habitat and protection and food and all sorts of things. And just the top inch of soil in some forests, every square foot of it, uh, for every square foot of, of forest soil in just the top inch, biologists have found an average of 1,350 creatures that can be seen. And as for creatures that can't be seen, a single teaspoon of forest soil can contain up to 2 billion bacteria. And many millions of fungi and protozoa and algae and much else made possible in good part by the breakdown of trees' leaves, the sacrifice of trees' leaves that fertilize the soil. Trees are the givers of water, the tenders and preservers of life, the holders of the whole world. Of all the members of the plant kingdom, the tree has dominion over the world as we know it. The whole world is in their hands. All that and more, and I could go into a lot more, but I won't. All that and more is the story behind what we heave into our living rooms. Some trees are the oldest known living organisms, just like him, who we call the Ancient of Days. And in their rings, you'll find the record of life on planet Earth. I'm going into more. I'll try not to go longer, but I just can't resist. Let me just say a couple more things. You'll find the record of life on planet Earth, just like in him, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're the source of almost all fruit, from oranges to apples to avocados to peaches to coconuts to pineapple to mango to, mango, to papaya um, to uh, uh, pecans. 
How do you pronounce that, Mark? Pecan? Pecan? <laughs> you should know. Pecan. All right. To everything else. Just like he's the source of it all. And um, I'll, I'll move on. I can see your eyes kind of glazing over. But in so many ways, they become arcs. They become mangers. They become crosses. In so many ways, they're trees of life. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, your boughs can teach a lesson. They're packed with meaning more than any poem, and I love poetry, but more than any poem I've ever read, which is probably why Joyce Kilmer wrote those famous lines. Remember the poem we learned in school? I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree and especially the Christmas tree. Because on top of all that, the Christmas tree is evergreen. It's always green. It's always alive. It doesn't even die in the winter because it stands for the ever-living one and for the everlasting life that comes from him. Have you ever noticed how you can't eat the fruit of a pine tree? Ever wonder about that? Ever try to eat a pine cone? (laughs) For the most part, it's got nothing edible in it. And that's fitting, too, because once Adam and Eve sinned, he closed off the tree. Because had they ate from it then, they would have lived forever in an unredeemed state, and we would have become hell on earth for eternity. He had to come to die first. So he closed off the tree. And I wonder, snakes, you know, now crawl on their bellies because of what happened in Eden. That's part of the curse. And maybe the evergreen used to have fruit, but now it doesn't because it's not for us to eat yet. Can you imagine how rich the fruit would be? It would be sufficient for glorified bodies. And one day we're told in Revelation that it will bear fruit and we will eat of it. It says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. It's finally available. With its 12 kinds of fruit. We'll never get tired of it. Bearing fruit, not yearly, but every month. And that's why each year we adorn our evergreen trees with those little glass globes, colored like fruit, red and green and and yellow. Because those little glass globes stand for the fruit that one day we'll enjoy when we eat of the tree of life. And we hang all sorts of good things on our trees, don't we? Because He's the source of them all. So many rich blessings, all coming from Him. And so we hang snowmen on our tree. Frosty the snowman that used to delight us as children. He delights in what we love. And toys we put there. We've got a little boat ornament that says the worst day of fishing is still better than a good day of work. Amen, men, anyone here? You'll probably remember that one. Which is one of his blessings too. And we've got these, on our trees, we've got these wooden hearts, each with a fruit of the Spirit engraved on it. Love, joy, peace, which comes from Him too. And bird ornaments we've got there. And many of you do too. And, and angels and fish and gingerbread men and teddy bears. And we've got a couple rocking horses too. And the state of Texas ornament to remind us of our 12 good years there. And one from Minnesota and many from Colorado. 
I mean, anything goes. Anything good goes on the tree. And it helps us praise Him because He's the one from whom all blessings flow. And underneath all those branches, those heavy laden branches with all those little ornaments, those tributes to the good life, underneath all that are the presents. This, this like this horn of plenty. This cornucopia of good things. For the most part, they're good. Just look at the presents. It's like this wave, this upheaval coming from the roots of the tree. This outpouring of gifts and surprises from the tree that stands for the one who, like David said, satisfies our years with good things. Psalm 103.5 Who, like Paul said, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 Who fills us with his treasure. Psalm 17.14 Even on his birthday which I think about says it all. Think about it. On his own birthday, he floods the world, which is a wonderful thing. Let me close with one more thing. Let me close with the lights. Let me tell you about the lights on our Christmas tree. I wrap those lights around every single limb and around every single offshoot of the limbs out of every single branch until I'm telling you that tree is ablaze. It's alive. It's a tree of light. Because that's what he is. The light of the world. It's kind of the running joke in our family. It takes me forever to put those lights on. And I can get kind of mad when, you know, you get a whole string on and a half hour later, it all goes out and you can't get it to work, right? So you unwrap that whole string. Several thousand lights are on our tree. You, you can see the thing from Highway 6. <laughs> you kid. And Mark and Jenny saw it as you drove up, I am sure, blazing out of that window when we had dinner the other night. Why go to all that effort? It's the least I can do. It's, it, 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 it's, a, it's a yearly tribute to the one who's the light of the world. It's a gift that costs me something. Which I think, for me, it's fitting. Not that if you don't do it, there's something wrong. It's just my own thing. But I hope you have something that's your own thing too each Christmas. It's a yearly labor of love. It's an altar. An altar of fire for the one who loved us so. Who was born in a manger who came to die. It makes him our vision each year. For the whole season, it glorifies Him who's the life and the, the light of the world. And so, you know, should we ban the gifts and banish the tree? Is there nothing Christian about Christmas? Is it all from pagan roots? All contraire. Quite the opposite. It springs from some very rich roots. And it can color your heart with the true meaning of Christmas. Just like she said, poems are made by fools like me. And sermons too. And that's probably why many people don't remember them, because I could do a lot better job. That's why I repeat some of them. So they can be fine-tuned. That only God can make a tree.
O Christmas tree, O Christmas tree, your boughs can teach a lesson. And so, let me close with this. The tree is at the very center of the Myers house, hearth, and home of our celebrations, of our affections each year, without apology and without complaining, for the most part anyway. Because it stands for what's at the very center of our faith, strong and true, the true meaning of Christmas. As C.S. Lewis said, it is at her center where her truest Christian children dwell, that each church is closest to every other in spirit, if not in doctrine. And this suggests that at the center of each, there is a something or a someone who unites us against all divergences of belief, all differences of temperament, all memories of mutual persecution. And it's that someone that we've been talking about today. And we must be careful to bear this in mind, that amid all our differences, that amid all our differences, as I said five years ago, by comparison to what unites us in Christ, what divides us is a molehill, not a mountain. What divides us is not necessarily unimportant or, you know, unworthy of serious consideration. But by comparison, compared to what unites us in Christ, what divides us is trivial. Compared to that someone who unites us against all divergences of belief, all Differences of temperament, all memories of mutual persecution even, and division. That's what we remember at Christmas time. And this year more than any other, may those boughs teach us a lesson. We'll have the servers come forward. So if you think about it, we're moving now from one tree to the other, aren't we? <laughs> from the Christmas tree to the cross of Calvary. From the night of his birth to the night of his death. He was born to die on that beautiful, scandalous night. As we're going to listen to now as the song goes. At the wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree at the wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree on that beautiful, scandalous night, you and me were atoned by his blood and forever washed white on that beautiful, scandalous night. You talk about blessings flowing from a tree. It's just like we sing. On that hillside you'll be delivered, at the foot of the cross justified, and your spirit restored by the river that poured from our blessed Savior's side. Oh, go up to the mountain of mercy, to the crimson perpetual tide. Kneel down on the shore, be thirsty no more. Go under and be purified. Thank you, Father. We want to thank you for that wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree. 
and for the river that poured out from it so we'd be thirsty no more. We want to thank you for the body that was broken on that tree and for the forgiveness that flowed from it so richly, so freely, because he paid the penalty. Father, as we hold in our hands what stands for the broken body, I pray that you'd break our hearts now as we confess and acknowledge the wickedness that sent him there so that we can receive your forgiveness. Fill us to overflowing with your goodness and mercy, especially toward those with whom we may disagree. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Father, as we take now, as we take the cup that stands for the blood, the blood that was shed for our sins, the blood that now unites us deeper than next of kin, deeper than any earthly blood tie forever. As we take of the cup that stands for all that, we pray that now and all through this season that you would unite us deeply in the Son. We pray in his name. Amen.
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Well, why don't we all stand together? Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share this gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and in you and through you, and me too, this week and all through the season. Amen and amen. Thanks for coming. Merry Christmas.